everyone. My name is Josh Scroggins. I pastor New Beginnings Family. Just wanted to say thank you for joining our podcast and welcome. We hope the following message will be encouraging, will inspire you to grow deeper in your relationship with Jesus Christ. If you'd like to know more about us or would like to support our ministry financially, you can visit our website at www.nbfamily.net. And as always, for all you do to support us, thank you. God bless you and enjoy the message. Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for joining me. Uh, We are in episode number three of our series called The Battle. And uh, in this episode, we are going to talk about something I didn't think we were going to talk about last week when I uh, when I told you uh, what was coming up for this episode. Um, I want you to just imagine for a moment that you are recruited into an army and uh, we, we bring you into the army, we teach you how to fight, and then we send you out. But you never learn what country you're fighting for. Uh, You don't know if you're going to have support when you get to the field. You don't know if those commanding you are reliable or competent. Uh, Would you agree that those fundamentals are important to establish before you're trained to fight? Well, a couple couple of weeks ago, we started a series uh, called The Battle uh, about spiritual warfare. And what we've been doing in the last couple of episodes is establishing a foundation for warfare that will be necessary later on. This series um, is examining the journey that the Israelites took to the promised land from Egypt and not just to the promised land, but when they got there, how did they take the promised land and how did they keep the promised land? We're, we're dealing with strongholds and bondages, identity, spiritual warfare, and quite a few more uh, more things. Ephesians 6.12 is, um, is our, kind of our theme verse for this series. It says, for our struggles, not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the powers, the world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Uh, look, this episode is, is not going to be the message um, that I thought it was going to be when I told you about it in the last episode. I fully expected that in this episode, we were going to be talking about the city of Jericho. But as I begin to study for it, God kind of stopped me short of that story showed me something very important for us that I want to share with you in this particular episode, and then we'll, we'll do a Jericho in the next one. Um, in, in this episode, what we're doing is we are going to be adding one more important piece to the foundation that we will need to be prepared for the spiritual warfare God is calling us into. And I'm going to give you one very powerful tool that you can use in spiritual warfare today in this episode. Um, We started this whole series by looking how God brought the people out of Egypt by using the very tools of the Egyptians' false gods. We learned how God will use the weapons of the enemy to free and to bless you. In the last episode, we looked at how the Israelites could not let go of Egypt, no matter how much God did to show them that they belong to him. And we learned that we cannot fight new battles with old mindsets. We learned that bad things happen when we try to mix our old lives and our new lives, when we try to worship God and also worship other things too. Now, you might be able to tell that this uh, series is on spiritual warfare, but we haven't actually talked about doing warfare yet. Well, that's because We've mostly been focusing on the mindset of spiritual warfare. In order to truly do spiritual warfare correctly, 
It's very important that we do so with the right mindset. It does no good to train a soldier to fight if that soldier does not have the will to fight. It doesn't matter how many skills you put into someone if the mindset isn't there. And so what we are, are doing first is building the foundation, building the mindset, building the expectations, building all of that foundation. Now, in the next episode, we're going to really begin learning about spiritual warfare tactics and methods. But before we do that, there's one very important piece of perspective that we need to establish. Now, we, we ended last week, we ended the episode of uh, the wilderness by finishing with the Jews stuck in the wilderness for 40 years. And today in this episode, we're going to start just after those 40 years have finished. Moses had just died. Joshua was appointed as the leader of the people. And we're, we're about to see a drastic shift in the perspective between those following Joshua and those who were following Moses 40 years earlier. Joshua 1.10, this is so what he says says then Joshua commanded the officers of the people saying pass through the midst of the camp and command the people saying prepare provisions for yourself for within three days you're going to cross this Jordan to go in and take possession of the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess it after Joshua's appointed leaders this is the very first time we see him speak these are the first words we see him speak. It is a bold declaration that no more time will be wasted. In three days, the people will cross the Jordan. They will take possession of the land that their fathers had refused to take. I love the word this that's used in this, in this passage because Joshua doesn't say in three days, you're going to cross the Jordan. He says in three days, you're going to cross this Jordan. That means that the Jordan was in sight. He was likely pointing at it as he said it. You're going to cross this Jordan. Now, that that is important, and we'll talk about in a little bit why that was such a bold statement. But for now, I want to take a look at the response of the people, and then we're going to move the story forward a bit. The people responded to Joshua by saying this. They answered Joshua saying, all that you have commanded us, we will do. Whatever you send us, wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, we will obey you. That would make me nervous, by the way. Uh, they obviously did not obey Moses in all things. That's why they were stuck in the wilderness for 40 years. Uh, but what they said is this, only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. And this is the part where um, I, I find some humor in it, only because the people speaking now were children when they left Egypt. Uh, remember, anybody that was 20 years and older had now died, except for Joshua and Caleb. Everyone else that was 20 years old or older had died in the wilderness. So all of the people talking now are the ones who were there as kids and watched the nation refuse to obey Moses' command to go into the promised land, refuse to, to listen um, to what Moses told them they could do. And they were stuck in the wilderness for 40 years. Now what they said is this, Joshua, anyone who rebels against your command and does not obey your words and all that you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. The people following Moses had rebelled against him and Aaron 40 years earlier. Remember, it wasn't Moses and Aaron who wanted to go back to Egypt. The people rebelled against the command of Moses to take the land. They wanted to appoint a new leader and return to Egypt. As a result, they're sent in the wilderness for 40 years 
the people in this passage seem pretty intent on making sure that doesn't happen again. In other words, what they're saying is if there's anybody else here who decides that they don't want to go in the promised land and they would rather stay in the wilderness, they're going to die. We will bury them here in the wilderness. They can stay, but we're not going to stay. We're going with you. So here's what happens. Joshua sends two spies into Jericho to check out the city. Uh, why two? The Bible doesn't say why. It just says that there were two. I do know that previously Moses had sent in 12 spies and only two of them had a good report. So it's possible that Joshua said two is good enough. I don't know. What I do know is that he sends in two spies to check out the city. And while they are there, there is a prostitute woman named Rahab who sees the spies hides them from the king of Jericho, who who hears they are in the city. The spies um, then promise her safety uh, for her and her family as long as they're in the house when the city is being conquered. She lets down a rope from the outer wall and they go down. They report back to Joshua. Now, what they tell, what they tell Rahab is this. As long as the people, as long as your family is in your home, they will be safe. If they leave your home... While we're conquering the city, if they if they leave the house, then it's not on us. But we'll make sure that you and your family are safe. We're going to actually talk more about that uh, in, in the next episode when we talk about Jericho. Uh, there's some pretty in, incredible things uh, we'll deal with that archaeology has shown about this city. It's, it's pretty amazing. Um, so the next day, <clears throat> after, after getting this report, the next day Joshua gets up early. And he leads the people to the Jordan River where they spend the night. When they get up the next morning, it was finally time to take the land. Now, that's the reason I thought that this episode was going to be about Jericho. But as I continued to read the next few chapters, I quickly realized there was too much to just skip over. There was something really valuable here that we needed to take some time on. This is a lesson that's far too important to miss. In fact, it is a lesson that has a generational impact. That the same God who did miracles for previous generations can and will do miracles for our generation and for the next one. And it is our job to make sure that the next generation knows it. So in the next few chapters, there are, there are four major things that happen. Number one, Israel crosses the Jordan. Right? They got to the Jordan. Now they have to get across the Jordan probably one of the most underrated miracles in all of the Bible. And, and I'm going to explain in a moment why that is, but probably one of the most underrated uh, miracles in, in Scripture. Joshua 3, verses 14 to 17 says, So when the people set out from their tents uh, to cross the Jordan with the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant before the people, when those who were carrying the ark came up to the Jordan and the feet of the priests carrying the ark stepped down into the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows all its banks all the days of the harvest. So in other words, the Jordan is, right now, it's in a flood stage, right? So there's a lot more water right now than normal, than the rest of the year. Then the waters which were flowing down from above stood up and rose in one heap, a great distance away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan. And those which were flowing down toward the Sea of uh, Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. So the people crossed opposite Jericho. And the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, while all Israel crossed on dry ground 
until the nation had finished crossing the Jordan. Um, now, many people take current measurements of the Jordan at flood time, and they use those estimates. It's one of the reasons why I think that we, we truly don't appreciate the magnitude of this miracle. Um, I, I've looked at pictures of the Jordan. It doesn't look impressive to me in, in these photos. Um, but that's because we're, we're looking at it today. We're not looking at what, it's, what it looked like at the time of Joshua. Most, most people who will, who will uh, give you measurements of Jordan will say at flood time, the river is up to 100 feet across, right? Maybe a few feet deep. Not super impressive, but it's enough that, you know, you know, it could be, I think, anywhere from, I don't know, it's several feet deep, but maybe 100 feet across at most. Um, those people are very wrong with that measurement. And because of that error, this is one of the most understated, underappreciated miracles in the Bible. Uh, according to Dr. David Moster, who is the director of the Institute of Biblical Culture, the annual flow of the Jordan River today is actually just 2% of what it was 60 years ago before a, major, a number of major dams were constructed. That means that the, the water flow that people are looking at today when they give you those measurements they're basing it on a 2% water flow. In fact, there's a, a great number of farmland, farms that are siphoning water off of the Jordan before it ever gets as, as far down as Jericho. And so by the time you get there and you're measuring it, what you're, what you're measuring is, is minuscule compared to the amount of water that would have been present uh, before all of this, these dams were built, before all of these farms uh, began siphoning off water. Matter of fact, even as as, as recently as uh, 1854, uh, Thomas J. Uh, sorry, Thomas R. Joliffe, uh, he told of an expert swimmer. This is an expert swimmer. This is not this is not just somebody wanting to take a swim. This is this is somebody who's very experienced at swimming, and he's telling the story of this expert swimmer who was unable to make it across the river near Jericho because the river was too wide and the current was too strong. His estimate was that the river could have been as wide as 300 feet. Uh, it can also get as deep as 10 feet. It's a lot of water. It's a lot, a lot, a lot of water. Uh, 10 feet deep also has tremendously strong currents. Now, now look, there, that was 1854, right? There was still a lot of farmland in that area. It, chances are that at the time of Joshua the water flow was even more. But let's let's just assume that it wasn't. This is still an incredible miracle. God backed up the water 20 miles, right? From, from the place that they were crossing, the town of Adam that's mentioned there is 20 miles north. So that means that God backed up the water 20 miles. That's a long ways to to separate this water. This is, this is not some little bridge that he's making. You're talking 20 miles. Uh, now, why is it important? Well, because you have a lot of people to get across this river. See, but before the, um, before this, the only way that people would come across the river is they would do fording, right? They would ford the rivers. They would make little rafts. They would, um, take their, uh, wagons and take, you know, and kind of try to float them across the river. The thing is though, you've got way too many people. Let, let me explain how many people we're talking about. 
Uh, Numbers chapter 26, 50, uh, verse 51, it says that there were 601,730 adult males. Okay, now these are just heads of household. Um, now there's a, a different ways you could do the numbers on this. You could just say, well, okay, so for every one man, we're just going to say there's one woman. And that would put you at 1.2 million. But here's the problem. Chances are there were much, much more, many, many more women than there were men. Um, why do I say that? Well, because if you remember right, Moses Moses became a prince in Egypt because of a, a travesty that happened in Egypt where the Pharaoh was having the baby boys thrown into the Nile. Uh, matter of fact, there's actually documentation where infant mortality, which was always high in the ancient world, uh, there, is, there was a year in Egypt where it spikes. I mean, it really spikes. A lot of infants, extra infants died. And it used to be that the infant deaths were about 50-50 male to female. But during this massive spike of infant deaths, there was a two-to-one ratio of male to female deaths which means twice as many male infants died during that time as female infants. That's a big deal. Uh, we know why. And that's because a lot of these male uh, babies, these boy babies, were thrown into, into the river, into the Nile. They were killed. So when we read in numbers that there were 601,730 adult males, it's very, very likely that there are far more women than there are men. It's possible that during that 40 years in the, in the desert that, um, that God corrected those numbers and brought it back one-to-one. -one. It, it's possible that that happened, but I, I think it's very likely that if there are 600,000 men, uh, adult men, chances are very good that there was close to a million women. Um, you know, so if you're somewhere around a million and a half, well, now you got to figure kids, right? You, you've got at least two, maybe three uh, children per household. I guess all I'm saying is, is that at absolute minimum, there are two million people. But likely it's probably closer to about three, uh, somewhere around three million. I think that's I think that's pretty conservative. But it's not just people. It's livestock. Remember, they've got livestock. Not only do they have livestock, they have all of their provisions. They've got wagons. They have their tents. They have their food. They have their clothing. Right? You, you, have, you have families. I mean, this is, this is a lot of people. And this is a lot of livestock. This is a lot of, a lot of things to bring across. This was not a small undertaking. So... So what God did is he didn't just march them through single file. Cause let me, let me just tell you, if you took that many people and you just went through and, and every second, another person crossed the Jordan, every second, every second, every second, it still would take you about a month, right? 29 days, I think was the number that I saw, uh, for, for that many people to come across. That's, that would be 29 days where those priests would have to stand firm in the middle of the river. That's not going to happen. So, so what they would have to do is they would have to, they would have to spread out and come across in droves. And so what God did is he backs up the, the Jordan river 20 miles. He gives them a 20 mile wide highway. Even then, 
this crossing likely would have taken at least a, a day and a night, maybe even a couple of days. Now there there is some significance to this this miracle. First of all, this is this is a tremendous miracle. The the Jordan was was a powerful river. It was known all through Canaan. But what's also important to understand is that this is a repeat miracle. God had 40 years earlier done a miracle very similar to this when he parted the Red Sea. It's it's part of the reason why I think this particular miracle is so underappreciated is that we're like, well, he's already parted a whole sea. Well, how big is it to, you know, part a part a river? We really underestimate how how big of a miracle this this really was. Because not only was God backing this river up twenty miles, he had to keep the waters held back until three million, two to three million people got across. That means he would have been holding this river wide open for them to cross for at least a day and a night, probably a couple of days. It may have even been a little more than that. But this is a repeat miracle. It was God showing that he was still the same God. In other words, this was God saying, hey, you remember that miracle that I did for Moses? Remember that miracle that I did for your parents? I'm still the same God. I'm the same God to you and to Joshua that I was to your parents and to Moses. Then the the second thing that happens is that Joshua orders two memorials to be made with stones. What he does, he tells the people to to bring 12 stones, representing the 12 tribes, to take 12 stones out of the middle of the Jordan where the priests are standing and to bring them up onto the shore. And on the dry land, they constructed these memorials. They they built these memorials out of those, those river rocks. And then he, he took another stack. He had them take another stack of 12 rocks from the shore and place them in the middle of the Jordan where the priests are standing. So they would see rocks in the middle of the, in the bottom of the middle of the Jordan stacked that were from the shore. Well, how else? So when you're looking at this, this memorial, when you're looking at those rocks coming by years later, you'd say, how in the world did they get those in there? How in the world were you able to, to stack up these rocks in such a formation in the Jordan? I mean, surely you didn't swim them over there. How in the world is it possible that they got in there? It was, it was a statement. Here's what, here's what it says in Joshua 4, 6. He says, this shall be a sign among you. When your children ask later saying, what do these stones mean to you? Right? That's, that's the ones we're talking about. Two, two memorials. Then you shall say to them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord when it crossed the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be a memorial to the sons of Israel forever. The purpose of these stones was so that the people would remember who God was and would pass that knowledge to their children. Notice that Joshua never tells the people to go back to Egypt where God had done those miracles. Right? He doesn't say, I want you to remember how, how uh, powerful God is and how he provided for you in the wilderness. So what I want you to do is I want you to go back into the wilderness and relive it. I want you to go back to Egypt and relive it. That's, that's not what he told the people to do. And I want to be very, very clear here on this. God doesn't want us to try to go back 
and relive the past. He doesn't want us to go back and get stuck in the past. He doesn't want us, but what he does want us to do is to look back and remember the past and to look back and to learn from the past. Joshua never said, hey, we're going to go back to Egypt and, and have God do those same miracles again. That wasn't going to happen. God wasn't going to do those same plagues again. They weren't to go back and try to relive and redo what God had already done. There's too many people that oftentimes get hung up in remembering what it was that God did and trying to go back and just do that same thing again. That's not what we are supposed to do. However, we're also not supposed to forget about what God has done. That's, that's another mistake that people make is rather than reliving the past, they just forget about the past. They refuse to learn from the past. They refuse to acknowledge what God has done in the past. But the fact is that what God has done in the past is tremendously important. Why, Pastor? Why, why is it important? Well, I want you to think for a moment. Uh, picture someone in your mind that, that you trust. And imagine for a moment that they told you something that would would be difficult to believe. But you would believe them. Why is it that you would believe them? Well, it's because they have a history, right? They have a track record. Because you know from their past, from your past experiences with them, you know that they are trustworthy. There's also people on the flip side of that, right? That if they tell you something, you're likely not to believe it because of their past. See, the point of these memorials was to remind the people of what God had done. To remind them that God had, 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 had done this miracle not only for their parents, when he parted the Red Sea, but also for them when he parted the Jordan. The purpose of this, these memorials, was to remind them of what God had done so that later when God instructed them to do things, later while they were following commands of God that maybe they didn't understand, they could look back at these memorials, remember who God was, remember what God had done, and that they would trust him in times that they weren't sure otherwise because they knew who God was. And we are to do that. We are to go back and learn from the past, see what God has done, remember what God has done, thank God for what he has done. We are to do all of that, but we're not to get stuck in the past. So take time and remember it. The next thing that happens is Josh orders the people circumcised uh, the people who were born in Egypt, they were circumcised, but the people born in the wilderness had not been, and God wanted to reestablish his covenant with his people. This is a callback, by the way, to the covenant that God had made with Abraham, right? It was symbolic of that promise. In other words, God was saying, look, I'm the same God who was with Abraham, the, the same God who was with your, your parents in Egypt when they were circumcised and had covenant with them. I'm the same God who made covenant with Abraham. I'm the same God who made covenant with Isaac. I'm the same God who made covenant with Jacob. I'm the same God who made covenant with your parents. And I now want to make covenant with you. And so the people need to be circumcised. It is symbolic of this circumcision. It was a blood covenant that was symbolic of a deeper covenant that God was going to use that people to bless the world. He was going to bless them. He was going to be with them. Then a few days later, after they had a time to recover and heal, the last thing that happens here before, before Jericho 
is that the people celebrate Passover. This is really significant. This is something that when I when I kind of saw the parallels here, it was it was pretty amazing because the Passover Seder, the purpose of it is for remembering how God delivered the the Jews from Egypt, how He provided for them in the wilderness. I think it's very interesting that the last thing that happened before they left Egypt was Passover, right? It was it was the last plague. Where, where the firstborn of, of humans, animals, right? The firstborn of everyone died except for those who had the blood of the lamb on their door and then that death passed over those homes. That was the last thing that happened when they left Egypt. And it's the first thing they do when they get to the promised land. I don't think the timing was a coincidence. In fact, I know it wasn't. Because we, we find out that Rahab says this, that she says, we heard the people here in Canaan, the people here in Jericho, we heard what God did in Egypt. We knew that God was with you. This is what she's telling the spies. We knew that God was with you and we were terrified that you were coming here. That means that 40 years earlier, the same Jews who were scared to take Jericho had no idea that the people in Jericho were scared that they were going to be taken. You had two nations that were terrified of one another and neither one of them knew it. But now Joshua has led the people across the Jordan and they're celebrating Passover. Remember, Passover is to remind them of what God had done, how God had delivered them from Egypt, how God had conquered their enemies. Right before they get ready to take the first city in the promised land to go to battle, they celebrate a memory of how God had already given them victory over a powerful enemy. And then the day after the Passover, for the first time, they eat the produce of the land and the manna stopped. Each of these events is a callback to our main point. Parting the waters of the Jordan, it was to remind the people that he was still the same God who parted the waters of the Red Sea. Those stones, memorials, they were to remind the people that God did a miracle for them and to provide a conversation starter to tell their kids about their story so that future generations would know what God had done and that God was still personally providing for them. The circumcision was to remind the people that God still had a covenant with them that he made with Abraham. Why? Because he was still the same God to them that he was to Abraham. Then the people celebrate Passover to remember what God had done as a way of appreciating God's power, the power to give them victory over mighty enemies. And here's the, here's the part that, that really just blew my mind when I realized it. All of this was done within sight of the first city that they would conquer. I mean, don't you think that the people in Canaan would have heard about how the mighty Jordan River had been backed up for 20 miles during flood season? Of course they would. 
Again, Rahab already stated that the people had heard about what God did in Egypt. They were already scared of the Jews. Now imagine that you're in Jericho. You look over the city walls and you see the Jordan River back up for 20 miles and millions of people come streaming across and you know those people are finally here. The ones we've heard about, they're here. And look, their God just stopped up the river. Jericho would be terrified. And now God had just announced the arrival of his people to everyone living in Canaan. And what's more, the people within eyeshot of Jericho begin to celebrate Passover. Now remember, it was a Passover Seder that Jesus reinterpreted into what we call communion to remind us of the same thing God was reminding them of right outside of Jericho. That the same God who delivered the Jews from the slavery of Egypt is the same God who would deliver us from the slavery of sin. This is the first spiritual weapon that you have at your disposal that you should be using. It's your testimony. It's your thanks. Do you want to know spiritual warfare 101? Let me give you the very first thing that God did here. Right outside of Jericho. This is the principle. Let the enemy who had previously held power over you, who had previously intimidated you, who currently is asserting dominion over your family, your mind, your emotions, your job, your finances. Let that enemy see you thanking God for what he has done in the past and for what he is going to do in the future. Let the enemy hear you giving thanks to God for the victory that he is about to give you. Do you want to fire off a powerful shot at the enemy of your soul? Then remind him that God defeated him in Egypt. Remind him that God defeated him at Jericho. Remind him that God defeated him at the cross. You remind him that God defeated him at the empty tomb. You remind him that God defeated him when he saved you. And finally, you remind him that God is still the same God and is about to defeat him again. I don't want you to finish this episode without hearing me tell you that the same God who parted the Red Sea was the same God who parted the Jordan. And the same God who parted the waters of the Jordan is the same God who raised Jesus from the dead. And the same God who raised Jesus from the dead is the same God who saved you. And the same God who saved you is about to give you another victory in Jesus' name. Look, in one sense, we've been at spiritual war since Eden. That's not what we mean by doing spiritual warfare. When we use the term spiritual warfare, we're actually talking about actively engaging in spiritual acts of war against the enemy and against spiritual strongholds. Spiritual warfare begins when powerful memories of what God has done are tied to powerful understanding of who God is. I'm going to say that again. I want to make sure you get that. Spiritual warfare begins... When powerful memories of what God has done are tied to powerful understanding of who God is. Spiritual warfare begins when we decide that we are going to trust God enough to speak it out and to act on it. And so I want to finish this episode by giving you a challenge. I want to challenge you to think back on what God has done for you. And to share that story with someone. 
I want you to take your kids by that stone monument, that place where God performed a miracle in your life. I want you to share with them who God is to you, what he has done in your life, how he has shown himself to be real and loving and powerful. I want you to share with them who God is. And then I want you to prepare your hearts and your minds for what is coming next week when we get into this aggressive spiritual battle. We're going to talk about aggressive spiritual battle. And I want you to be ready. I want you to prepare your hearts and your minds for what is coming next. If, if you're maybe binge watching, binge listening to these, if maybe you're going back and, and, and you're watching this a lot, a lot longer uh, after we've recorded these and you're watching these back to back, before you start this next episode, I want you to pause and to prepare your heart for the next message. How do I do that, Pastor? You do that by taking time to reminisce about what God has done and who God has been to you so far. You do this by taking time to realize that God has not changed and what he has done before, he can do again. If you've given up hope, that God can still do something in your life. I want to remind you that God does not change. And the same God who saved my life can save yours. The same God who changed my life can change yours. And the same God who saved your life can save your kids. The same God who delivered so many people in our church, in my family, from shame, from addiction, from fear, depression, and more. It's the, it's the same God. He is the same God who can deliver you right now. You just have to ask and believe. Get ready. Because in the next episode, we go to war. Guys, thank you so much for joining us at New Beginnings Family. We appreciate you listening and hope that the message was encouraging, inspiring, challenging, that ultimately it brings you closer to Jesus Christ. If you have any questions for us or would like to get a hold of us, you can reach out to us at www.nbfamily.net. Thank you so much. We love you. Have an amazing day. And thank you for all your support. We'll see you next time.